0: G'day and welcome to Stick Together, Australia's only national radio program dedicated to union news, worker stories and discussion on social justice issues. This program is produced in the Melbourne studios of 3CR and broadcast right around the country on the community radio network. My name is Matt Kunkel. This week on the show we take you to an event organised by the Rail, Tram and Bus Union and the Spirit of Eureka, commemorating the 50th anniversary of the general strikes defending the tramway secretary Clary O'Shea and demanding his release from prison for refusing to pay fines levied against the union. These strikes broke the back. the penal powers the state used against unions to dampen their militancy. In the last decade we've seen an increase of the use of fines and the threat of jail for unionists as a major tactic of capital to crush unions once and for all. Now with the union movement facing yet another hard right government intent on crushing it, what lessons can be learnt from our past and what relevance do they have to our current situation? More of that later but first, some union news. While votes are still being counted and the results in some electorates remain undecided, it is clear that the government of Prime Minister Scott Morrison has been returned for another three-year term. On the back of strong results in Queensland and Tasmania, the Coalition looks set to pick up enough seats to form government in their own right. It was, however, a good night for independence, with Helen Haynes replacing Kathy McGowan in the regional Victorian seat of Indi. And, in the biggest shock of the night, former Winter Olympian Zali Stegel defeated the former Prime Minister Tony Abbott in his hitherto safe Liberal seat of Warringah. While Tony Abbott's demise may be cause for celebration, his brand of hard-right conservatism still runs through the Liberal Party, with the likes of Peter Dutton, Michael Suker, and Kevin Andrews all returned to Parliament. Large field campaigns from the union movement, environment NGOs and GetUp were all largely unsuccessful in unseating their targets. The election saw another surge in the vote for far-right parties, including One Nation and Fraser Anning's Conservative National Party, particularly in Queensland where their share of the first preference votes rose by over 5%. Clive Palmer's multi-million dollar ad spend has failed to see the mining magnate win a single seat, but appears to have disrupted and undermined the Labor vote sufficiently around the country to hand power back to Scott Morrison, a favour sure to be repaid in kind. Bill Shorten took the stage last Saturday to concede defeat and step down as Labour's leader. At the time of recording, both Anthony Albanese and Chris Bowen have declared their candidacies for the position, setting up an election for the leadership of the Labor Party. The next step will be a ballot of the party's rank and file, worth 50% of the result, and then the federal caucus will vote, which counts for the remaining 50%. The candidate with the highest aggregate score will become the new leader. Victorian workers from the pharmaceutical giant Sigma have invaded the company's AGM last Wednesday. The workers are angry at the company's attempts to bust their union. They say the company is using cost-cutting as an excuse to close existing warehouses in Queensland and WA before opening new warehouses nearby. The company then refused to redeploy the long-serving and experienced workers to the warehouses and instead moved to a labour-hire casual model of employment, forcing workers into the anxiety of insecure work on the minimum wage. More than 300 jobs have been cut after the company's loss of a lucrative contract to Supply Chemist Warehouse. The cost-cutting has led to other problems, with the company coming under fire for reportedly failing to ensure prescription and other over-the-counter medications are kept in the proper temperatures. There are claims that pallets of pharmaceuticals have been left in the sun in temperatures of over 30 degrees, potentially spoiling or reducing the efficacy of these drugs. The union claims that the de-skilling and casualization has led to the problems, and that workers at the Roeville warehouse have reported some life-saving medications are being left out of cold storage for several days. At the AGM, Sigma CEO Mark Hooper, who was amongst the top 10 highest paid CEOs in the country, gave himself a $2 million bonus, making an absolute mockery of any claims that job cuts were necessary to cut costs. Italian dockers in the port of Genoa have gone on strike, refusing to load a ship already partially loaded with arms and other military equipment on its way to Saudi Arabia. Dockers blockaded the port demanding a boycott on the vessel and refusing to be complicit with the Saudi's war in Yemen. This is not the first time that this vessel, the Bari Yenbu, has faced problems on this voyage. After taking on a shipment of arms in Belgium, which some groups in Europe have argued is against a number of international sanctions, it was said to receive a further shipment of weapons from a French port but was met with protests and sailed on without taking on any cargo. It was again met with protests in Spain, where it is understood it took on two containers of new cargo. At the time of recording, the vessel is anchored off the coast of Italy, with its ability to take on war machineries from that country in doubt. The Coalition's election victory on the weekend has buoyed the spirits of Australia's CEOs, who are now making a public call for the government to make wide-scale changes to the industrial relations system. Despite proposing no changes to the IR system during the campaign, CEOs are now calling on the government to make changes that will allow more flexibility, which we all know is code for driving down wages and conditions. In the days since the election, employers have come out to call for further restrictions to unions' right to enter workplaces to speak with their members. The coalition remained almost completely silent on industrial relations in the lead-up to the election. Their only major announcement was that they would accept all the recommendations of the report by the Migrant Workers Task Force, led by Alan Fells. The report called for national licensing of labour hire and the criminalisation of wage theft, along with greater accountability in supply chains. Business, however, has seized upon the election result to put forward its log of claims, and the union movement is expecting retribution for its two-year electoral campaign against the government. Senior union officials have already expressed concerns about the expansion of the powers of the ABCC and the Registered Organisations Commission, both of which are set up to frustrate and obstruct the operations of unions and their ability to represent their members. As the economic circumstances tighten and a recession looms, we can expect a crescendo of calls from business to make changes that further prop up its profits at the expense of workers.
1: You're listening to Stick Together, workers' stories and union news. broadcast around the country every week on the Community Radio Network.
0: May the 16th was the 50th anniversary of the six-day general strike in defence of the Victorian Secretary of the Tramways Union, Clary O'Shea. Over 500,000 workers across the country laid down their tools and took action in what remains the largest strike of workers in post-World War II Australia. O'Shea was jailed for refusing to pay fines levied against the union for militant industrial action. Commemorations of the event have been held around the country with some focusing on the parallels between 1969 and today and the unfinished business of securing the right to strike for all workers. In Victoria, the Rail Tram and Bus Union joined with Spirit of Eureka to hold an event in Melbourne's West. We'll bring you some of the speeches, the first of which is excerpts from historian Humphrey McQueen. At the
2: dawn of 1968 much was necessary for our class while more than ever seemed possible. In January, <laughs> Postal workers went out for eleven days. <laughs> At that time, another dispute displayed the militancy that would be sparked into a forest fire by Clary's imprisonment 16 months later. In December 1967, the Arbitration Commission increased the Metal Trade's Award by $2 a week. A win for the workers. The Commission has also encouraged the bosses to absorb that increase into existing over-award payments. A loss for the wage state. On February the 6th, 200,000 metal workers struck nationwide in defiance of bans clauses. A big blow <coughs> against capital. On February the 20th, the Commission backtracked the doors. another win for us. That head-to-head saw qualitative changes in how each of the contending classes looked upon penal powers. Victories by the metal unions, however, did not end them. On the contrary, the boss class intensified its resort to them. By February the 16th, its agents had secured 52 no-strike orders in New South Wales alone had laid over 200 charges for contempt and got the Industrial Court to impose fines totalling $100,000. Indeed, oh sorry, $20,000. Indeed, the total of fines on all unions in 1968 was $100,000 a third of all fines that have been imposed since 1951. Yet what looked like a win for the bosses spurred our class to end that way of punishing us. The victory over absorption spotlights three pillars in the wisdom of our class. The first is that every contest over wages and conditions is decided by the relative strength of the contending classes. To be at our full strength, we have to bind together our creativeness on the industrial, political, intellectual and cultural fronts. The second pillar of that class wisdom is that we won't get from the courts what we can't hold at the gate. The state is not our friend. On the contrary, it organises capital and disorganises labour. Sometimes it disorganises us by organising us in up the proper channels of arbitration and the parliamentary road to nowhere. A third pillar is our ability to make a critical analysis of the political economy of capitalism. Every shop steward who went out in 1968 knew full well that there can never be a fair day's pay under the rule of capital. Even when wages keep up with prices, the necessity that capital has to expand in order to survive means that we're made to need a wider range of commodities. To give but one instance of what affluence meant inside a worker's home in the post-war period. To be poor in 1949 meant not being able to afford a radio. In 1959, being poor meant not having a record player. By 1969, it meant having to rent a television. We're forced to cover the mounting expenses for the needs that are induced in us to meet the needs of capital. To do so, in those days we sought over reward payments and overtime, push for equal pay, while even two income households were having to lean on higher purchasing. That double bind goes some way to explain why teachers and nurses were also going out on strike. That's why even bank clerks went out in November 1969. And that's why tens of thousands around Australia walked off even after Clary had been let out of jail. We have a duty to broaden everyone's understanding of what happened. And we also need for those activists of today to to grasp exactly how it happened. Only by making sense of what was then possible and essential Will we be able to draw the useful comparisons with today? Bruno strike can't be conjured out of thin air. Not even if you scream through a megaphone. Class wisdom is measured not by brute strength, but as an old meat worker used to tell me, by how you know how to sharpen your lives. Minimum harm to the workers, Norm Gallagher used to say. Maximum harm to the boss. Long before Worst Choices, the ABCC and Unfair Work Australia, the political <laughs> agents of capital strove to twist the balance of class forces back to where it had been before 68-69. Their reaction after May 69 began in South Australia with civil <coughs> claims for damages against the AWU and then against the Builders' Labourers. How did 1977 Secondary Boycott's legislation attack our capacity to stand truly by each other? In the process, they trampled on their own new province for law and order, <coughs> forcing us back to the 19th century when unions came under the criminal and the commercial law. In 1970, I asked a French comrade how they planned to commemorate the Paris Commune of 1871. We knew that in 68, he exploded. (laughs) The stereotypical Frenchness," he added, to remember anniversaries, to remember only anniversaries, is like celebrating a marriage only on the wedding day. It means that love is dead. Well, we've gathered here tonight to recall a famous victory. Yet we know that the final celebration of the O'Shea dispute came in 1998, when we rallied to prove that the MUA is here to stay. The spirit of standing truly by each other—the spirit of Eureka. Swelled again as tens of thousands joined forces to beat back worse choices until we were sold down the river. Whichever lot wins on Saturday, the results can do no more than initiate a further bout in the mighty truth that Clary had learnt during a lifetime of being skilled in struggle. There is an irreconcilable gulf between labour and capital. To the class question, whose side are you on? is life was his answer and it remains our inspiration.
0: You're listening to Stick Together, right around the country on the Community Radio Network. That was Humphrey McQueen speaking at the recent celebration of the 50th anniversary of the 1969 general strike. In defence of the tramways union secretary Clary O'Shea. Next up is Shirley Winton from Spirit of Eureka, providing her reflections on the dispute.
1: Between 1951 and 56, wave upon wave of anti-democratic punitive penal powers were rolled out by the Menzies Liberal government to crush the militancy of workers and unions. By 1966, after 800 penalties and millions of dollars in fines imposed on 28 or 27 militant unions, many became convinced that the penal powers could only be imposed through mass struggle. This awareness and willingness to fight the penal powers was the culmination of more than 10 years of systematic preparation by militant unions, workers and communists in workplaces and communities right across the country. For more than 10 years, the penal powers were perma- permanently on many unions' agenda for discussion at every executive meeting, every government and members' meetings. They were explained and discussed at length with members and supporters at community meetings and at university students' meetings. So, the 15th and 21st May 69 mass strike and protest by more than a million workers and working people were not spontaneous it was merely the final chapter in a 10-year battle that took a lot of hard and often complicated work. Led by Clary O'Shea and Tramway's union members and other militant unionists and communists, the struggle did not simply rely on parliamentary parties and the bosses' courts to abolish their personal powers. Rather, it was the power informed, organized and prepared working class and their supporters that brought victory. Workers never had the legal right to strike. Nevertheless, this didn't stop thousands from striking, withdrawing their labour, and resisting relentless attacks. And I have vivid memories of vivid memories of my father going out on strike um, at time to talk about the situation where strikes were basically illegal, but they still were fire. For Clary and other militant unionists and communists landing in jail in the course of doing your job fighting for workers was the price a militant worker or union official paid for them going to jail was never about the heroism of this or that individual it was always about fighting for your class for the workers years of pleading and appealing to bosses politicians parliament and courts by union officials proved to be fruitless whilst the bosses became more and more involved Glary and his comrades held the view that these were institutions of capital for protecting the (coughs) bosses' interests, especially big business. For these reasons, Glary and others stressed that the working class and unions had to act independently of parliamentary parties, and that with patient work in raising awareness and organising the grassroots, it was only a matter of time, discipline and tactics before these laws would be challenged by workers organised mass action. In the month before he was jailed, Clary ignored summonses to appear in court for refusing to pay the crimes. As part of this strategy, he went into hiding. The Tramway union's finances were dispersed and hidden in different places, including in a large locked metal box, dispatched interstate and buried on a remote farm. <laughs> It was then decided that the time was right for Clary to front the courts on the 15th of May. That morning, Clary attended a packed meeting of 5,000 angry workers at Festival Hall. His fiery speech was met with roars of approval. (coughs) Workers and students passionately pledged to fight the penal powers and support Clary whatever it took. They marched to the courts with Clary, chanting, all the way with Clary O'Shea,
0: mm-hmm. when
1: thousands more had gathered. Clary was jailed immediately for an indefinite period, and the sentencing judge was, as I mentioned previously, the infamous John Kerr, who later became the Go- Governor General, conspired with the CIA to remove the Whitlam government in nineteen seventy-five. Mm-hmm. Within hours thousands of workers across the country down tools, switched off the machinery, walked out, And protested in the streets across the country, demanding clarity release and the penal powers revealed. In the next days, more than a million across Australia were on strike. The Victorian economy almost came to a standstill. All public transport stopped, gas and power running out, school and university students abandoned classes, breweries and parks closed down. Thousands of workers, including in the Pilbara and Kalgoorlie, Took wildcat strike action and the fire instructions from some union officials not to support the strike and not to support Clary. It sent a shimmer of cold fear into bosses and the government who desperately arranged to have the anonymous benefactor pay all of Clary and the tramway union's fines. Clary was immediately released from, from entries on the morning of 21st of May. For Clary and the 28th Rebel the legal and parliamentary strategies were only a secondary line of tactics to back up the main struggle, not as a substitute or replacement for it. Ted Hill and Lionel Murphy and other progressive and democratic rights lawyers worked closely and hard with Clary and the rebel unions advising on legal strategies. They strongly advised Clary and unions that the legal and parliamentary strategies should only be used to supplement the main preparations for mass mobilisation, that the real game changer is independent mass action and not to be substituted with reliance on parliamentary parties. So where did Flurry get his courage and confidence in this collective power of informed and mobilised working class? His working class roots and long experiences in the day-to-day working class battles grounded him deeply with the people He always remained loyal to his class and ordinary working people. I met Clary several times and he was refreshingly humble, not pumped up, full of self-importance and genuinely dedicated to workers and the working class. He listened carefully and took advice from workers, offering but not imposing his opinion and views. He never placed himself above ordinary working people and was highly respected by workers everywhere he went. He proudly called himself a Marxist-Leninist and used to say that, quote, being a Marxist-Leninist communist made me a better trade union official, yeah. He said his politics gave him the understanding, courage, and immense confidence in the collective power of working people. He was really a true leader of the Australian working class. At the time of the penal powers battle, he was one of three vice-chair of the communist party in Australia. For months and years, the courts, the government, media, and employers joined forces in fierce and relentless attacks on Clary. They demonised and vilified him for being a communist. He was constantly followed, spied on, threatened, and abused by Asia and his family here would pretty much verify a like of this. But it was all ignored and laughed off by workers who knew, who knew and loved Clary, as he was a dedicated and selfless communist, trade unionist, working tirelessly, selflessly for the interests of his class, for the workers. Clary himself shrugged off the orchestrated vilification. So his class political insights instilled in him the patience and the confidence that the working class will be compelled to end capitalism. Clary said many times that the penal power struggle was much broader than the fight for workers' wages, conditions and the right to strike. He, along with others, saw the penal power struggle as a political struggle of the working class. Clary and the Tramway union members were also involved in the anti vietnam war movement. The courage of conscription resistors and anti-war activists also gave confidence to Clary and the Union and his, and his um, colleagues in the Tramway Union. The penal power struggle and the anti-get movement inspired and gave confidence in it, to each other's struggle. However, victory against the penal powers shortly. The penal powers were never revealed, though just obviously gap. Go- Use against unions for a few years to avoid another outbreak of vast defiance. In 1977, sections of the penal powers were brought back in the guise of the Trades Practices Act and secondary boycotts. And for the next 40 years, the anti-worker laws continued to be strengthened. In 1977, Clarence called that a pamphlet titled "Resist New Penal Powers." It is calling on workers to struggle again against the Trade Practices Act and Secondary Boycotts. And the booklet states in part, quote, It was only the action, the struggle of the tramway workers, O'Shea and thousands of Australian workers, that led to the paralysis of the penal provisions. And these words still hold true for us today as we prepare to fight,
0: enter worker laws and change the rules all we have time for this week on stick together thanks for tuning in stick together is produced in the melbourne studios of 3cr with generous financial support from the community broadcasting foundation and listeners like you the show is broadcast right around the country thanks to the community radio network and your local community station you can help keep workers stories on the air by calling your local community radio station and subscribing today if you'd like to listen back to the show or any of our other recent episodes you can find them at 3cr.org.au forward slash stick together you can also get in contact with the producers of the show by calling us on 03 9419 8377 or emailing us at sticktogether 3cr at gmail.com if you want to find the show on facebook just search for stick together program finally remember wherever you are whatever you do there is a union for you i'm matt kunkel until next time stick together